how many of you think Cody did a good job greeting today? I'm up here looking at Cody, and I see his son Elijah in his lap, and Elijah has just fallen asleep. That is not permission for any of the rest of you to fall asleep as I'm teaching this morning. But he looks pretty peaceful in your arms. So we're in Acts chapter 12 this morning, looking forward to teaching this passage. Um, you know, it's a sort of a sh- short chapter, that, but there's a lot of information packed into there um, and personalities that we get introduced to or reintroduced to. And one of the things to keep in mind whenever you're studying the Bible is the Bible is not a book of ancient history only. It is that. I mean, the Bible was written beginning probably with the book of Job, one of the first books written uh, through the Revelation over a period of about 1,500 years. Uh, It's an ancient text to be sure, but it's a supernatural text. And when you read it today, you're not just reading ancient history about the birthing of the church 2,000 years ago and what happened to them, but the Holy Spirit communicates to each of our hearts as we read these words and understand these circumstances, something about our lives today and the application of God's spirit and his word and power ultimately in our lives and our circumstances. Whatever you're going through today, this book has something to say to you. And I think that'll be the case today in Acts chapter 12. Now, Acts chapter 12, just uh, by way of introduction, it's sort of a transitional uh, chapter in that we begin to depart from Jerusalem and Peter as primary location and person in the text. Peter is going to be pivotal in the chapter this morning, but after chapter 12, we don't really read much about Peter anymore. We'll see him again in the council in Acts chapter 15, but then really not hear much about him anymore at all. The focus will transition in Acts chapter 13 to the Apostle Paul. And Jerusalem, which has been the center of the church, where the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem begins to take a back seat, and Antioch, up in Syria, becomes the center for the evangelism that will take place, and the church reaching out to the world uh, all through Rome and and Spain and, and, and ultimately beyond those borders. And So it's sort of a transitional chapter in that regard. So... I want you to be thinking in terms of uh, that transition as we move through this. So let's just begin reading the passage. Verse 1, chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, we'll read later in the chapter that Herod dies in this chapter. This is Herod Agrippa I. Herod will die, and we'll talk more about that. But Herod Agrippa I died in 44 AD. So this is about 12 years or so after the day of Pentecost, after the church was birthed. And, you know, as the church has been spreading out, Luke has been telling the story of the church's birth, of its growth. It seems like every Sunday that I've been fortunate enough to teach, there's been an aspect of persecution that's been going on. When I I taught Acts chapter 4, it was uh, Peter and John who had been 
preaching and healed the lame man and they were persecuted. Acts chapter 8, there was a persecution that followed uh, the stoning of Stephen and the church began to spread out. And here again, we see persecution in the church. And I just want to say to you that the Bible promises that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the, the apostles themselves said that it is through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. So, the Christian life is not an easy life. There are challenges that occur for every one of us in some form or fashion. It's, it's not a life that we just skate through. There are enemies out there that are opposing us. The God of this world, be certain, Satan. He wants your destruction. He's looking to, to upset your apple cart and to make your life a living hell. But the world also intends to uh, destroy the work of God. The world does not like the church or the work that the church is doing. And that's what's happening here. Herod uh, is beginning to persecute the church. Herod was an interesting character. He grew up with a man named Gaius, who ultimately would become the Roman Caesar Caligula. So they were childhood friends. Uh, Agrippa was the son of Aristobulus, who was the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the Herod who was around when Jesus was born, who killed all of the innocents there in Bethlehem. So Herod Agrippa is his grandson. He grew up in Rome, as I said, with a, a close friendship with Gaius, who would become the uh, emperor Caligula. And he had a real sense, though, of connection back to Judea. And he had a real desire to be accepted by the Jews. He tried practicing the Jewish religion. He was an Edomite. Um, he was not a Jew, but he was an Edomite of Edomite descendancy. And um, because of that, was somewhat ostracized from the Jewish nation. But Caligula, when he became the Caesar, appointed Agrippa as the king over Judea. And Agrippa began to really reach out to the Jews. He became circumcised. He began to practice the Jewish rituals and really wanted acceptance by the Jews. And here we see that consistent with what the text is telling us, that Agrippa arrests some of those belonging to the church, and it pleased the Jews. They were happy about that. And as, uh, as part of that persecution, he had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. Now, James was part of that inner circle of Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, there were three that oftentimes would be set aside from the twelve that Jesus would take and they would be involved in some type of activity on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. It was Peter, James, and John who were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. And so here, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. That pleased the Jews. Peter gets imprisoned as well, and he's being guarded by four squads of four soldiers. What that means is that Herod was really serious about what he was doing here. Typically speaking, a prisoner would be guarded by two guards. One guard would be chained to the prisoner and one guard would be unchained but observing. But in this case, there are four squads of four soldiers each. And we'll see in a moment that two of the guards would be chained to Peter and two of the guards would be watching the entrance to the prison. So, Herod, And this was typically done only for the most severe criminals, murderers. But here, Herod has assigned this guard to Peter. So he's really intending to do harm to Peter in this instant. So Peter was kept in prison. Just take a moment here. I'm going to pause for a commercial break. James and John, in, in, in Mark chapter 10, 
I'm not going to charge you for this. It's a free commercial. James and John, in Mark chapter 10, came up to Jesus along with their mother and said, Lord, grant us what we wish. And the Lord said, well, what is it? He said, grant that we can be seated at your right and your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking and go through what I'm going to go through? And they said, yes. And Jesus answered them. It was interesting. He said, indeed, you will go through what I go through and you will drink of the cup that I drink of. But to sit at my right or my left hand is not mine to give, but the Father's only. And then Jesus gives a little teaching on servanthood. The ten became indignant at at James and John, and Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But it's not going to be that way with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's the the lesson of servant leadership. Chris called me yesterday and, and asked that I pass this out. This is a request for ushers and greeters. Not to come up here and greet but to, to serve at the door and greet people coming in. We need three people for next Sunday, and then uh, beyond that, there's a wide-open opportunity to serve. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be the servant of all. So I'm going to pass this around, and I want you to take note of that. And if you have the ability to, and the heart to, be a servant That would be very much appreciated. Okay, back to the actual message. I thought that was good, though, because James, you know, beheaded, um, wanted to be great in God's kingdom. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That interesting word there, translated earnestly, it could be translated intensely, with great agony, but it also can be translated anchored. It's a, it's a term that can be used to describe an anchor that has been set in the sea and is firmly positioned. And I think that's an interesting word that, that was used here because the church here, this is a, over a period of a few days because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast that lasted seven days. So there was a period of time that Peter is in prison and that the church is gathered together praying earnestly, intensely, anchored in position praying for him. They're not going to move. They're not going to change their position. They're going to continue to pray to God for him and intervene on his behalf. And the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, as I said, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. That's the other two soldiers. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, this is interesting to me as well. Do you remember the time when the disciples were crossing over the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and the storm blew up and they thought they were going to perish and, and they tried to awaken Jesus in, in, in the, the belly of the boat and said, Jesus, awake, 
don't you know that we're about to perish? And Jesus said, hey, what, what happened to your faith? I told you we were going to the other side. And so Jesus said, peace be still. And Jesus was sleeping right through the storm because he knew where he was going. Here we see Peter sleeping so soundly, so peacefully, so securely, that the angel, the word there says strike actually means to smite or to smote him. He had to strike him really hard to wake him up. Peter is at peace here. He is unconcerned. Now, it may be because one other time we read about in Acts chapter 4, Peter was in prison and an angel came and uh, released him from prison. Or it could be that Peter remembered the words of Jesus there in John chapter 21, where Jesus was talking to John and to Peter, and Jesus was telling Peter how he was going to die, what would be the manner of his death. And Peter asked Jesus, well, what about this guy? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus said, you know, whatever happens to him is really not your concern. If he stays until I return, that's really not your issue, Peter. You deal with what I'm giving you to handle. But Jesus told Peter that he was going to grow to be an old man, and as an old man, he would be taken where he did not want to go and put in a position he did not want to be in. And of course, Christian tradition teaches us that Peter was crucified upside down. So Peter knew he was going to live to be an old man. Jesus had promised him that. So Peter here is is totally at peace, resting in the the midst of a situation that I dare say most of us would be pretty concerned about. The angel has to really strike him to wake him up. And finally he does. And the chains fell off his wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And it opened for them by itself. And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now, one of the things I love about how God deals with us and interacts with us is even in the midst of supernatural activity, as we're seeing here, angel coming, awaking Peter, chains falling from his wrist, the guards being unable to uh, perceive what is happening. In the midst of all of that supernatural activity, the angel tells Peter, put your clothes on, get your sandals on. Very ordinary stuff. I mean, why didn't the sandals just float through the air onto his feet? You know, they didn't. No, Peter was told to gird himself and to put on his sandals. And I find that to be the case in so many situations throughout the Bible, where there's a supernatural activity occurring, and yet God interacts through that supernatural activity with us in very ordinary ways. When Lazarus was risen, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, what did Jesus tell those surrounding to do? said, move the stone away. Roll it back. Now, of course, Jesus could have spoken and the stone would have rolled away, but that's not what happened. Jesus said, you roll the stone away. And then he called Lazarus to come forth. When he fed the multitude, you ever thought about how that happened? I mean, did the fish just sort of suddenly appear and continue to appear and the bread and the same? You know, I mean, somehow... Those two fishes and five loaves expanded to feed 5,000. But what happened at the end? 
What did Jesus tell the disciples to do? Go gather it up. We don't want anything to go to waste. Supernatural activity accompanied by very ordinary activity on our part. The reason I want to bring that up is because sometimes we think we live in an entirely ordinary or natural existence. And we don't really perceive or understand that all the time God is working supernaturally in our lives. There's an instance in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the prophet Elisha is in a city and the armies from the neighboring country Aram have surrounded the city overnight. And they awaken in the morning and they look out and their armies are everywhere. Horses, chariots, footmen. And Elisha's servant says, Oh no, my Lord, what are we going to do? And Elisha said to him, Don't be afraid. There's more with us than there are against us. And he prayed that his servant's eyes could be opened, and his eyes were opened, and he saw the angel armies of God surrounding them. And right now, if our eyes could be opened, we would see angels surrounding us. Each one of us has an angel, Jesus said in in Matthew 18.10. So there's someone sitting right next to Christy. I wish he would help you walk a little bit better, but... But there's an angel right there. Each one of us has an angel with us and other angels ministering to us. That's what it says in Hebrews 1.14, that they are ministering spirits sent to assist us in this life. We're surrounded by angels all the time. Every time we take a trip, the first thing that Christy and I do is pray, and we always pray that God would send his angels before us to direct our steps and to guard us. We're living supernatural lives, people. Very ordinary fashion, to be sure, We're tying our sandals. We're girding ourselves. But don't ever doubt the reality that there's angels surrounding you, that God is at work supernaturally in your lives. You know, when we get to heaven, we are going to be astounded looking back at the many ways that God intervened in our lives that we didn't even perceive. And that's what's happening here. So while Peter is walking through the street. The angel suddenly leaves him. Peter is required to begin to apply some common sense. I mean, I don't know why the angel couldn't have just taken him exactly where Peter needed to go. Why did the angel have to disappear? We don't know. It doesn't answer that question. But Peter came to himself, it says in verse 11, and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, People have commented on this a lot, and I find it to be interesting myself. They had been fervently, intensely praying. They had been anchored in place, intervening, interceding on Peter's behalf. And yet, when Rhoda goes to answer the door, and she hears that it's Peter's voice, and she runs back to the group who is busy praying, and says, Peter is at the door. They doubt her. You're out of your mind. It's got to be his angel." And isn't that so true of us sometimes? We're praying fervently for what we need, for someone we love, for a situation we're involved in, 
a battle that we are fighting. We're interceding. We're, we're really, you know, to the degree we're able, expressing our mustard seed of faith that God will intervene on our behalf. And he does. And standing at the door is the answer to our prayer, and yet we're unwilling to take that step of faith and move to the door and open it to allow God's fulfillment to come to be. That's what happened here. It's it's sort of a contradiction that's occurring. They're praying fervently, but when the answer to prayer comes, unwilling, at least at first, to allow that prayer to come to fruition, the answer to that prayer. But ultimately, they do. Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Now, this is a different James that he's referring to. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, who we read about several times in the Gospels, who did not really believe in Jesus, was not a disciple of Jesus throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, but ultimately became a disciple after the resurrection and then became a leader in the church. And so here even, and we'll see James again in Acts chapter 15, leading the conference there in Jerusalem about working with and dealing with the Gentiles. Here Peter is saying, go tell James and the other brothers and sisters what has happened. I'm out of danger. God has delivered me. Your prayers have been answered. And so he left for another place. And so in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, he did not find him. And he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed, which, again, was the, the protocol. Peter was being treated as though he were a murderer. As I said, four squads of soldiers, four soldiers each in each squad. Peter was being treated with the most intense level of security possible. And so for him to escape meant that the guards had to experience the uh, sentence intended for that prisoner. And in this case, that was death. And so the, the soldiers, all 16 of them, were executed. So then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two coastal cities up along uh, the Syrian-Lebanon area, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, this was actually an incident that's recorded in the Jewish historian Josephus' writing. They were celebrating a, a feast to the Roman Caesar Claudius. Caligula had died in 41 AD, and this is for, now 44 AD, and uh, Claudius is the Caesar, and they're celebrating a seven-day feast unto Claudius, and this is on the second day of that feast. And so Herod Agrippa enters into the hall arrayed in a robe made of silver thread. And Josephus describes it as the sun shining in from outside onto this silver thread and Agrippa appearing as though he were a supernatural or a god. So this is recorded in uh, Josephus' writings uh, outside of the Bible. And the people shouted, this is the voice of God and not a man. And, and, and Agrippa was known as a good orator. He was a good speaker. And he was... Uh, in this instance, no doubt, speaking of something relative to Claudius because the feast was in honor of Claudius. But immediately, verse 23, because Herod did not give praise to God, 
An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. And Josephus records this as well. It says that Herod was overcome by intestinal pains and had to be taken out of the hall, and five days later, he, he died. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me that the, the Bible says that he was eaten by worms. No doubt they must have done some kind of autopsy of him and determined that he had intestinal worms and that that is actually what killed him. But I want to suggest to you something here, and I want to suggest something that applies to Herod Agrippa, but I think also can apply to us. Herod Agrippa was physically eaten by worms, but there was a spiritual problem that really was the cause of his demise. He was eaten by the worm of pride. He was a prideful man. When he entered the hall and the people began to proclaim him as a god and not a man, he received that praise. He understood it to be so. And that pride that filled him was part of what destroyed him. No doubt he thought, truly, I am a great orator. I'm a great speaker. I'm arrayed in fine fine robes here. The people are correct. And that pride that went before him destroyed him, as the Bible promises that it would. He also was destroyed by the worm of the pursuit of power. Herod, because he had been a childhood friend of Caligula, was in a position of power. As I said, Caligula had appointed him as the king over Judea. But he was seeking more and additional power. In fact, one time when Caligula and uh, he were riding, before Caligula was the emperor, they were riding in a chariot, and Agrippa said to Caligula, I would that you were the Caesar. And the driver overheard what Agrippa had said and reported it to the Caesar, who then punished Agrippa. And that was where Agrippa remained in punishment until Caligula became the Caesar. So he desired power. He pursued it. And I think it was that pursuit of power, that sense that he can attain something through his own strength and his own machinations that began to destroy him. You know, and when we do that, when we become prideful, when we become pursuit in pursuit of power, we also are in danger of being destroyed. And then finally, I, I think he was destroyed by the worm of possession. He sought possessions. Of course, this, this robe, as I mentioned, that he was dressed in was made of silver thread, very, very ornate, very expensive. And it was designed to speak to the people about the possessions that Agrippa held, that he was a wealthy man. And I think, again, we need to be careful as we receive things from God that we don't deceive ourselves into believing that somehow we have attained these things through our own ingenuity, through our own power. As Christians, our understanding ought to be the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Herod was destroyed physically by worms, but ultimately it was a spiritual issue that caused his demise. Now at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is in power. He's persecuting the church. He has James killed. He has Peter imprisoned. But then prayer occurs. Peter is released. And at the end of the book, or end of the chapter, we read that Herod is destroyed. 
So sometimes we are in circumstances that seem dire. In this situation, no doubt, the, the, the church was very concerned about what would come of them as Herod Agrippa was persecuting them. James has been killed. Peter's been imprisoned. What are we going to do? Well, fortunately, the church chose to pray. Just a quick commentary back on the first part of the, to the chapter. I want to speak to God's sovereignty. The fact that God does things His way in His time, and sometimes we don't understand that. I mean, why did God allow James to be killed and somehow supernaturally deliver Peter? The Bible doesn't answer that question. It's just the sovereignty of God. Now, was James in worse position with God than Peter was? Is that why Peter was delivered? Or could it be that James was in better position? Because Psalm 116, the psalmist writes that the Lord delights in the death of his children. Because when we die, Paul says, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, from our perspective, sometimes death looks very sad and, and, and we lose those we love. And perhaps even ourselves, we fear death because we're uncertain of what happens after that. But as Christians, we really ought not to grieve or to fear like those who don't have hope, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Because when we die, when we're absent from this body, we were with God in heaven. So who was in a better situation here, James or Peter? In the sovereignty of God. But ultimately, verse 24, it says that the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Luke is writing about the birth and the progression of the church in the book of Acts. The various persecutions that occurred. But at the end of every persecution, we read that the word of God is moving out and spreading. And God's kingdom is expanding. More people are entering into it. So whatever your circumstances are today, however difficult they may seem, how overwhelming they may appear, what I want you to understand is that prayer changes things. Prayer undergirds everything that, you, that the church does. Whether it's you praying, whether it's you joining with others to pray, God is moved by prayer. The uh, Puritan divine Thomas Watson wrote, that the angel fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Jason, if you'd put up uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, I want to finish with this scripture. Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. We're going to receive an offering now and just continue and be in a posture of worship as we receive this offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity 
to give back unto you a portion of that which you have given to us. You are a sovereign God, and you are able to do things in ways that we cannot fathom or comprehend. Your ways are not our ways. They are much higher. So take this offering, Lord. Use it to expand your kingdom and to bring glory to the name of your Son, Jesus. All right, let's join together, stand up, and we're going to conclude with the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee.
All right, let's circle around and share joys and concerns with one another. All right, well, I'm just going to start off. Those of you who are on the, the prayer list know that yesterday I sent out a prayer request for my son, Zachary. He uh, called Christy and I yesterday and told us that he'd been, um, he's going in to see, well, he had been in to see a neurologist. He's been having seizures and has an MRI on Tuesday. So if you'd be praying for him, they're trying to diagnose whether or not he has uh, some kind of tumor or growth in his brain. It could just be uh, something much more simple. We don't know, but if you'd just be praying for him as he goes in to see the MRI person on Tuesday. Others? I don't see Donna here this morning, but we prayed for her sister last week, and it was, they, they had just barely sort of getting new hearts, and on Thursday evening, she got that new heart. Wow. I haven't heard this morning, but yesterday she was doing very well. Praise so, God. Awesome. Others? Gerald. Other joys or concerns? Ellie. Um, there's uh, Jared, and he is still struggling. Um, so uh, we need prayer for him. And then um, there's another little girl. Her kids don't know Spanish, but uh, the little one is eight years old and um, needs new kidneys. And um, the lungs keep filling up with fluid. Jason. So this morning when we when I came in, there was a woman with a tree in her in her praise music. And uh, so whoever you are, we have a little note for you. They might not no, they'll be okay. <laughs> I'm supposed to say thank you for that. Please remember to pray. Yeah. Yeah. Gracias. 